Welcome to Elevate, the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chesser. I'm so thankful to have you here and I'm blessed and grateful to be sitting here with Russ Gray. Russ, how are you? Good. Happy to be here. Thanks, Tyler. Absolutely. No, it's been a lot of fun to get to know you briefly here before the show. And I know we're going to have an enlightening conversation. We're going to be serving some listeners today. So with that said, I want to welcome Elevate Nation back because it's absolutely time to take it to another level. And I have no doubt that we're going to do that today with Russ. And I want to you know, welcome you back because our mission of our show is to identify how the best of the best raise the bar personally and professionally to achieve greatness in real estate and beyond. And I say personally and professionally because it's all about personal growth. It's about committing to yourself. It's about committing to your own psychology, your own learning, your own curiosity, um, your network, your understanding. I mean, there's so much that goes into growing yourself as an individual and not really just about the tactics of real estate. So we're going to talk a lot about economics today. We're going to talk a lot about the financial system, you know, really what's going on in terms of this, you know, phase of the market cycle. Obviously, we're going through some very choppy waters right now as real estate investors, and we still have to grow ourselves. So we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about mindset, habits, routines, systems, tactics, strategies, so on and so forth from an individual like Russ, who is really elevating to a life without limits so that you, the listener and the viewer can do so uh, the same or even more for yourself. And so this is a masterclass for leaders and those looking to achieve uncommon results and purposeful outcomes through real estate investing and ultimately in their lives. And if you appreciate what we're doing, we would certainly be grateful if you subscribe to the show, if you gave us a rating, a review, uh, it helps because our goal is to reach millions of people with this message, because guess what? You don't have to live a life that you tolerate. You can actually live a life of fulfillment, of joy uh, by committing to your own personal growth, by investing successfully in real estate. And with that said, I want to introduce you to Russ Gray, who is the co-host of the Real Estate Guys radio show. He's an avid student of economics with a diverse background in business, investing, mortgage, and financial services. And Russ brings a unique and practical insight to help entrepreneurial investors grow and protect their wealth and income through real estate and real asset investing. So with that said, Russ, welcome to the show. How are you? Uh, good, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit more about yourself behind the bio. Who is Russ Gray as a man? Well, you know, I'm an old man, so that's a long story, but I think uh, the short of it is, you know, um, my father was an immigrant from the Philippines and his dad was a guerrilla fighter during the Japanese occupation. You know, my dad loves liberty. Uh, he earned a scholarship to Stanford University. Um, not sure exactly what the chronological uh, sequence of event was, but um, I came along and he ended up not finishing college and he worked his way through management and became an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley. Took a company public in um, 1987 and, uh, you know, my, my story was I kind of went to work in high tech at the lowest level of the food chain. I was a material handler at Hewlett Packard. That's about as low on the on the corporate ladder as you can be, and quickly grew to hate it. I just saw no path. And my uncle, uh, my dad's younger brother, who was an outside sales guy in Southern California, and I was growing up in Santa Clara Valley, which was a sleepy little orchard town pre-Silicon Valley. And uh, so I got down in the glitz and glamour of Southern California, learned uh, 
outside sales in the streets with my uncle's mentorship and really learned the value of mentorship going through that experience. I realized the power of entrepreneurism and the ability to be judged by what you produce and not just by some objective or subjective uh, assessment based on your IQ or your degree or what brand college you went to. None of that mattered, you know, in outside sales. So I loved that. Uh, bought my first piece of real estate when I was 19, started my first business, sold them both and discovered the wonderful world of equity. I made more money on the property and the business on equity than I had made both my wife and I working together full time for the entire tenure of our ownerships. So I thought, well, I can make more money on equity than I can on trading time for dollars. So that began part of the process. Um, Kind of fast forward in 87, I went into financial services, 86, started an insurance brokerage and was selling securities, mutual funds, mostly, um, you know, annuities. And the, the crash of 1987 came and my dad went from being a multimillionaire to getting wiped out. And I thought, how in the world could somebody who is so smart, uh, so uh, well advised, theoretically anyway, because he had all these financial planners around him, be completely devastated? But that was because he was playing in a rigged game and I came to hate Wall Street uh, and th that whole system. And so when that happened, I quit the financial services business. I went back into corporate sales and incubated for about 10 years, started to make a lot of money. One year I woke up and I was paying more money in income tax and I had dreamed of what my dream income would be. Man, if I could ever make this much money gross, I would be so happy. I was paying that much money in income tax and I thought, wow, this can't be right. I got to figure out how to take that down. And as I started studying the tax code and the tax system, came across a book called The Creature from Jekyll Island written by G. Edward Griffin. And that book really changed my life because I began to understand that our financial system was a system of enslavement, of bondage. And even though you can become financially free, you can't break free from the system. And at some point, the system could swallow you up. Of course, little did I know that we were in the middle of a dot-com bubble. Five years later, that dot-com bubble blew up. I, I dodged that a little bit. I had started doing some stock trading. You know, I didn't like Wall Street, but I thought, hey, if I can master the art of getting in and out of positions, I'm not really participating. But uh, I, I, I came to realize that wasn't really investing. That was just a job like flipping houses. You know, that's not real estate investing. That's, that's having a job. Nothing wrong with it. Real estate is a great trading tool, but it's just not the same as developing streams of passive income, whether you're investing in debt or equity. So uh, anyway, so all that happened. And the short of it is I went into the mortgage business in 2000, decided to look for ways to market it, wanted to lead with education, heard a radio show called the Real Estate Guys Radio Show, uh, broadcasting in Silicon Valley in 2001, went to a seminar, met the host, Robert Helms, realized that there were some things lacking in his business model that I could help him with. And he certainly had a lot of things that I could definitely benefit from. And we started working together cooperatively. 2004, I became the co-host of the show. We wrote a book together, Equity Happens, became very popular on Amazon. We ended up with a TV show. Our financial education business grew. We started a brokerage company, a development company. Uh, today, we you know have the largest real estate development company in the country of Belize. And we don't talk about that on our own radio show because we didn't use our show to self-promote. But um, it's been really an interesting ride. 
And after the 2008 financial crisis in which I got wiped out, my mortgage company got wiped out, my real estate portfolio got wiped out. That's where I really began to pay attention to what was going on at the macro level to try to figure out how I could see danger and opportunity coming sooner so I could get in position. Uh, and that's kind of where we're at. So after 2008, it changed me. I've been spending the last 10 to 12 years preparing for the next crash. And here we are. Here we are. Absolutely. And obviously, I appreciate you describing your journey up to this point. And one thing that really stands out about you is just the level of curiosity that you approach life and business with. Is that just a function of you know, necessity that you've had to pivot and seek out more in, you know, deeper or more sort of wide ranging information to be successful in what you've done? Or how has curiosity uh, played a role in, in your success? That is such a unique and great question. And it really started and got reinforced through a couple different ways through, through mentors. So when I first got started in outside sales, I was just getting destroyed. I didn't realize that sales was a skill. I thought that it was a mindset. I thought that it was a innate ability, a personality type. And I was really swimming against my own nature. And of course, I had no training. I was an introvert. I was shy. I was socially awkward. I sucked at small talk. I like to talk about things of substance. And so I started listening to training tapes. A friend of mine, uh, gave me a set of tapes by a guy named Tom Hopkins. Uh, and the, the sales training uh, course was called How to Master the Art of Selling. And in that, one of the things I learned was to be curious. Instead of being afraid of picking up the phone and calling a prospect, I became curious. Became curious. I wonder what's going to happen. And instead of judging myself for my failure, I became curious about how I could take the feedback I was getting, which was I was losing and, and suffering pain. And how could I use that feedback and improve? And Tom Hopkins taught me to never see failure as failure, but just as an opportunity to get feedback, improve my technique and performance. And it was the criticism a coach would give, you know, don't do it like that. Do it like this. This works better than that. nothing wrong with me, you know, innately because I didn't know. And so that started. And then when I met Robert Kiyosaki, Robert Kiyosaki's got to be one of the most curious people I've ever met. And when you get a chance to start spending time with your heroes, and fortunately, as we were talking uh, before the, sh the microphones went on, the, the Real Estate Guys radio show has given me the ability to get into personal relationships with some of these people, G. Edward Griffin, Tommy Hopkins, Robert Kiyosaki, Peter Schiff, people that had influenced me before I ever met them. Then I got to know them. And when you spend time with people, you really kind of learn how they think. And I found some common denominators among the most successful people. They were humble. They weren't trying to show off how smart they were. They were curious, um, meaning that if, if you had something valuable to say, they wanted to hear it a lot more than they wanted to hear themselves talk. And when I started adopting that, because how you think and what you believe affects what you do. And if you want to change your results, you have to change your actions, but you can't change your actions by themselves, not permanently. You know, a lot of people change their actions to lose weight and then they go back to their old actions because they didn't change how they think. They didn't change how they think about food, how they react to stress, how they think about exercise and activity. They didn't change any of that. And so once the, the, the short-term will and accountability of the weight loss program goes away, 
and you achieve your goal, you go back to being who you were. So if you want to affect permanent change, you got to change what you think and believe. And Jim Rohn says you become the sum total of the five people you hang around with, spend the most time with. And so curiosity came from hanging around successful people and realizing they were all uh, almost to a man or woman curious people. So I said, well, okay, I'm going to become a curious pe person also. And that, that just served me well. Are you someone who's seriously looking to elevate your life, your business, your real estate portfolio, your cash flow, your deal opportunities, your access to opportunities, your network this year? Well, if that's you, then I invite you to visit coachwithtyler.com because I'm currently opening up a few coaching spots for people like you who want to close the gap from where you are to where you want to be. And really, you know, expand that beyond your wildest dreams and explode your business, explode your deal opportunities, explode your vision for what you're looking to create. If that's you, I invite you to visit coachwithtyler.com. I really have to tell you that this is not for everyone. This is only for those who are decisive. They're committed. They're willing to do whatever it takes. They're willing to invest time, energy, and resources into themselves to get to where they want to be and to live a life without limits, to elevate to a life without limits, which is really what we're all about on this show. If that is you, again, I invite you to visit coachwithtyler.com. Again, that's coachwithtyler.com. Absolutely. And speaking of curiosity, I mean, my curiosity is peaking at this point to know what is going on in that beautiful mind of yours in terms of what do you think is happening right now in terms of this environment? The economic landscape obviously has been vastly impacted uh, by the coronavirus, by the pandemic, and, you know, some shifts that are occurring perhaps in the financial system, uh, shifts that are happening across you know, many markets and, um, you know, so on and so forth. So I'd love to know, you know, where we are today and, and where this is going. I mean, what's your, what's your take? Well, shift happens and the shift just hit the fan. Um, what we've got is uh, you have a health crisis, which, you know, some people think it's, you know, legit and the reaction has been 100% justified. Some people think we haven't done enough. Some people think it's been completely overblown. Uh, one of the things that I've had to learn is it doesn't really matter what I think. It doesn't change what's happening. And as an investor and as a businessman over the years, I've had to learn to set aside my proclivities and my prejudices and my own preferences and just accept things for what they are. Jim Collins in his book talks about, you know, good to great, talks about you got to confront the brutal facts. So we have a health crisis. Uh, so that health crisis resulted in an economic crisis in the form of a lockdown, the cessation of economic activity. It's like a giant economic heart attack. So if you can imagine currency, money flowing through the body, the organism, the organization of society, and the heart stops beating, the blood stops flowing, and now individual cells, people like you and me, and organizations, organs, big and small, are now going without nutrition, going without oxygen. They're not being fed. So we have this giant economic heart attack. You know, the Fed's answer is to give you a transfusion, to put more blood in your system. So now we're kind of bloating a system that's still not moving. So it's not a liquidity problem we're having. It is a, a velocity. It's a, it's a flow of money problem. And so they're trying to stimulate that, obviously, through fiscal policy. That's why the Fed came out and said, hey, we need to spend money. So health crisis to economic crisis, which was resulted in the cessation of revenue to corporations and individuals and governments. 
And because our entire system is based on the flow of revenue into uh, credit markets, making debt payments, and that asset prices are all a reflection of those credit markets and the size of those credit markets. And the only way the economy can grow is if debt grows. That's the fundamental flaw of the way the system is constructed. We got that in 1913. We went from being a capital-based system to becoming a credit-based system. That's why those little green pieces of paper Americans carry around in their pockets, it's not money. I mean, it tells you right on its face, it's a note. A note is a promise to pay. The problem is it's not redeemable for anything. You can trade in it, but you can't actually go redeem it for money. Those things, if you're old enough to remember, used to be redeemable for silver. And prior to 1933, they were redeemable for gold. In other words, they were IOUs for real money. So we separated money and currency. We've been in that system for a long time. So health crisis to economic crisis to financial system crisis and financial system meaning credit markets, and banks. Of course, the ultimate bank, the Federal Reserve, they're not stupid. They can see what's happening. They're like, oh my gosh, all this debt is going to go bad. The banking system is going to implode. Credit markets are going to blow up. This is exactly what happened in 2008, except on a much, much smaller scale. 2008, we had a little slice of the mortgage uh, borrower community called the subprime borrowers, and a small percentage of the subprime borrowers defaulting because they were in those 228 loans and they were using them without income verification or true qualification to speculate on real estate because it was going up, up, up. And the attitude, I was in the mortgage business at the time, I know. The attitude was, hey, I'll use the 228 to get a loan I really can't afford, but the price of the house is going to go up so much in two years, either I will be able to refinance it and get another 228 or maybe my credit and income will improve and I'll be able to get a, a you know, like a 30 year fix and that'll be a good move or I'll just sell it, take the profit, which all works if there's equity there. But when there wasn't equity there, that didn't work. And when that didn't work, those people couldn't take the bump up from the two, per, you know, the two year teaser rate to the new rate and they defaulted. When those defaults started to factor in to the mortgage-backed securities, because the way the mortgage community work is they'd go originate a bunch of loans and then out of their, their uh, warehouse line of credit, which is like a giant HELOC for mortgage bankers. And so they're going to go out there and they're going to originate all these loans, draw down their credit line. They're going to package them all up into a security called a mortgage-backed security. They're going to sell it on Wall Street to investors that want to invest for streams of income, the way you and I might buy a CD or an annuity right? And they want to invest for the stream of income coming off the back of the, the homeowners. When, when a certain level of defaults went in, those, the, the value of those bonds dropped, which would be bad for the people who'd invested in them because now the, their, their, the, the value of their uh, investment goes down. It's like if you buy an apartment building as a real estate investor and your rents go down, the value of your investment goes, goes down. And the difference is, is that if you have a loan on that investment in real estate, you don't have a problem until you can't make the loan payments. You don't have a margin call. But in the paper asset realm, you have things called margin calls. That's what wiped my father out. That's why I'm familiar with him. In 1987, he, he had margined his stock. And then when the 1987 stock market crash happened, he got a margin call he couldn't meet. They sold his stock, was founder stock. He had a huge capital gain, huge tax bill. And he went from being a multimillionaire to being dead broke in 
a matter of 90 days. And I saw that and hated Wall Street after that because it should have never happened, but that's the shenanigans. So 2008, same thing happened to me. 2008, the mortgage-backed securities went bad based on a mark-to-market basis, meaning you got to mark your balance sheet to what the market price is. They, they, they took the losses and they got the margin calls. So now in order to meet the margin calls, they had to sell anything they had at any price to raise the cash. And there wasn't enough cash to go around. The asset prices went no bid because everybody was in the same boat because these derivatives of these mortgage-backed securities, what Warren Buffett called uh, financial weapons of mass destruction, were all exploding. And the company that had insured it all through credit default swaps, AIG, was going broke. They couldn't pay. They never anticipated paying all those claims. Insurance models like fractional reserve banking is based on collecting money from everybody and only having to pay out a few. When you have to pay out everybody, it's game over. And so that's what ended up happening. Those those bonds went no bid. Credit markets collapsed, took me out. But that was all just based on mortgage-backed securities in a little small slice of subprime borrowers who couldn't pay. Today, we have bigger debt markets, we have more derivatives, and we have everybody not able to make payments. Just look at all the debt just in the shale shale oil industry, just that debt. Or look at Hertz just went bankrupt. And what did they have, like $19 billion in debt or something? All the companies that borrowed to do share buybacks during the free money era, right? So we just have so much debt. So that's how a economic crisis mutates into a financial crisis. And when you realize that through these margin calls that, that assets have to start to get sold in order to raise cash, you have a temporary bid on the dollar but then ultimately the Fed is going to print so much currency, it literally threatens the, the viability of the dollar. And that's, that, that's you know, the end game. End game is if the dollar collapses, the rest of the world has kind of been getting ready for it. And we can talk a little bit about that. But the big question, you know, when you take all this macro stuff back down to Main Street, you know, guys like you and me, are we ready for it? Are we ready is your portfolio ready for an asset price uh, and rent decrease? Or is your portfolio ready for a lack of credit, credit markets to completely seize up, you know, a year, two years, three years? Are you ready for that? And ultimately, are you ready if the currency were to lose dramatic amounts of value, not just a little bit of value, you get a 107 year history of the dollar losing value, but are you ready for it to like fall off a cliff? I'm not saying it's going to, but the tee up is there. So that's kind of where we're at. And you got to confront the brutal facts. And then you got to say, okay, as a strategist, what do I have to work with? What are my strengths? What are my opportunities? And then what do I have to dodge? Where are the threats and what are my weaknesses? And what do I need to do to try to bolster my weaknesses and avoid those threats? And those are the things I think every serious investor at any level should be thinking about right now uh, because it's all happening very quickly and nobody yeah. knows how it's going to end. Absolutely. And let, let's go through a SWOT analysis on this right now, because as you have mentioned previously, you know we're all in this together and we all succeed if 
you know, each of us succeeds. And so what is it that we can do to face this challenge and be aware and confront the brutal facts, as you've mentioned a few times, to say, all right, well, what are our strengths right now? What are our weaknesses? What are our opportunities and threats facing this unprecedented sort of circumstance? And also, what is the fallout, you know, of this? How does this differ in terms of previous fallouts? How does it compare to perhaps even the Great Depression? So let's go through a few of those things right now. If you're open to it, let's go through a SWOT analysis. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you, you have to do that as an individual. I think just kind of looking at what everybody in general has access to, one of our great strengths is access to information and ideas. The fact that we're doing this, that voices like yours, like mine, like some of the people that we're featuring on our crisis investing one, or you got to understand when, when people out there are watching mainstream financial news, they are listening to people that are funded by and beholden to interests like Wall Street and the banks and the politicians. And so there, you don't, re, they're not talking to you. They don't understand you. When they talk about real estate, they're talking about homes you live in, or they're talking about REITs and collections of, you know, commercial real estate. When they think about investing, they don't think about purchasing streams of income. It's all speculation on buy low, sell high. They don't even understand cash flow investing. So if you're watching financial, mainstream financial news for your views and perspectives and information, you're being fed maybe not a line of bull, but certainly a limited diet of truth that's designed to spin things in favor of paper assets. If you're a real asset investor, those voices aren't heard. So one of the great strengths that we have right now is the First Amendment and technology and those two working together where people can get out and share. So rather than watch, you know, 18 million reruns of whatever on Netflix, you know, catch up on every episode of The Walking Dead that you didn't see back in whenever it was out and you've always heard it was good. Uh, instead of doing that, you know, listen to shows like this watch YouTube videos where people are discussing, you know, sign up for our crisis investing webinar. It's totally free. Crisis at realestateguysradio.com gets you on the list. And we're talking to these people. So take advantage of that. That's number one. Number two is you got to look on your, your, your balance sheet and you got to see what you have to work with. And if you have, you know, what I call idle equity, the market is going to take it. So either you're going to take it or the market is going to take it. Right. If you've got, you know, say a million dollars of real estate debt and five hundred thousand dollars of real estate equity, you could wake up in 90 days with a million dollars of real estate debt and zero or negative equity. That happened to me. It can happen very quickly because equity in real estate in markets that are financed are largely air. I love equity, but equity is only paper is only wealth on paper. It's not real wealth until you convert it to real wealth. The real wealth is the income. That's the real wealth. And you can convert it into cash now through a loan where you convert a stream of payments that come in from your tenants, your net operating income, into a bigger loan to harvest that equity. The difference is when real estate is booming or the promises that it will be booming, you can take that equity and you can pair it with more leverage and expand your portfolio by taking that $500,000 and making five $100,000 down, down payments, 20% on five more $500,000 properties and then two and a half million dollars of top line real estate in the same amount of equity. That's all great when equity is growing, but when equity is shrinking, that may not be the play. 
So you want to get liquid because I don't think we're anywhere near seeing the bottom and there are going to be a lot of bargains for people that are liquid. And because you've got cheap mortgages right now that you can lock in long term, it's not a bad investment strategy to borrow long and cheap so you can invest short and high, right? You don't want to do the opposite. Having a HELOC on your property, which is borrowing short with an adjustable potential rate, that's a dangerous play, especially if then you turn around and make somebody a 10-year mortgage, you know, so now you're borrowing short and lending long. It, unless you're a bank backed up by the FDIC, that's a game you don't want to play, right? So that, that, that's another, you know, kind of thing is if you've got uh, equity on your balance sheet and good cash flows, uh, take a look at that and how you can pair those together through the low interest rates, which is another strength we have right now to lock that in long term and get liquid. So that's a strength. Um, your tribe. So you should be in mastermind groups if you're not already. So it's one thing to listen to people. It's another thing to talk with them. Robert Kiyosaki taught me that you process information better when you have conversations. And so if you listen to something or if you and a friend or a group of people listen to something like this show or read a book together and then talk about what you learned, what is the author, what is the speaker saying, and then what does it mean to me and how can I put it into action? You're going to find that people didn't hear what you heard. They don't process the way you process and you're going to expand your understanding and you're going to learn to take things that you understand at the gut level, at the feeling level, and you don't have the ability to put into words. And you really have a hard time acting out or sharing plans with your team and your advisors if you can't take what you think and get it into words. So the act of just talking through. So uh, we all have friendships, we all have relationships so through technology, even with sheltering place and social distancing and blah, blah, blah. We still have the ability to get together. We're doing mastermind groups on Zoom because it gives us all an opportunity to see each other's faces, have a human connection and share ideas. So absolutely your tribe. And your tribe is not just, you know, your peers that you mastermind with, but it's also your advisors. So this is a great time to take a look at your advisory team, you know, your CPA, your insurance people, certainly your mortgage pro, I'm very pro mortgage people, both commercial and residential one to four, make sure that, you know, they're keeping you up to speed on what's happening. Insurance companies have been giving rebates, right? If your insurance agent didn't tell you that, then who knew, right? So there's things going on where there's either money that is available to you or loans that are available to you or things that can happen. So, you know, your tribe is a big part of it. And, uh, you know, and, and so obviously your tenants, your customers, those are huge. Your brand, your reputation, hopefully is an asset. Don't do stupid things during this crisis to ruin that. Your network, all the people that you know, I'm, you know, as you know, Tyler, from having come to our Secrets of Successful Syndication training, I go on a major rant at that, at that seminar uh, about building your brand and building your network. Because if you have a big, a great brand that people trust and you have a big network, a lot of people who trust that brand, when you put something in front of them that makes good sense, a good investment, a good deal, a good opportunity, a big chunk of them are going to say yes. And that means that with a brand and a network, you have the ability to generate revenue in almost any environment. And so that's a strength. And if, if it's not a strength you have now, it's a strength you can begin to develop, which would roll it over to the area of opportunity. But, you know, when I look and kind of do the SWOT analysis, you know, on, on our business at the real estate guys, 
you know, that's the way I look at it. And those are the things I think about. And obviously, we've been taking a, a lot of action since 2008 to prepare for this moment. So in some ways, we're ahead of the curve, you know, which is great. At the same time, it came too soon. And I feel like I'm not as ready as I would want to be. But ready or not, you know, here it is. Absolutely. No, and I appreciate you going into that because obviously, you know, it is important for us to all recognize how many strengths we do have, right? Whether it's sharing information, as you mentioned, whether it's access to, you know, low interest rates in this current environment, it's historically low interest rates. And if you've got equity, you know, you've got to realize that that's equity that's on paper and it's not realized until you capture it. So is there a refinance opportunity? Is there you know, a sale opportunity, perhaps before, you know, more of the threats are actually realized and more of the, the weaknesses in the financial system and in the economy are realized. And so I, I really appreciate you going through that. One thing that you mentioned there in terms of, um, you know, overall, just sort of identifying what the strengths and the weaknesses are, is that you recognize that, you know, liquidity is going to be important because on the back end of this, there are going to be opportunities, perhaps even bargains. Talk to me, what do you think are, you know, going to be some of those shining objects that, uh, you know, real estate investors can sort of prepare for? You know, what sort of opportunities are you seeing in your own crystal ball there, Russ? Well, I, I, you know, I think that the, the basics of real estate investing never change. You know, real estate, especially residential real estate, is a basic and essential human need. And so there's always going to be demand as long as there are people. And last time I looked, whatever it is that people do that make more people, they're still doing it and more people are coming. So that's just the nature of the beast. Now that's on the macro scale. Of course, any specific geography could have an influx or an outflow of population and real estate 101 is you've got to pay attention to the uh, migration in and out uh, and population growth. Uh, and you have to, you know, compare that to the availability of supply and the ability of the supply to expand. And that happens through a variety of different circumstances. You look at landlocked areas like Manhattan Island or San Francisco Bay Area, where there's an ocean, a bay, mountain ranges with greenbelt legislation. I know that market very, very well. Uh, you, and, and you compare that with booming economies in the financial and tech sectors, you know, New York and, and San Francisco, you have a recipe for rapid equity. But of course, those markets would never cash flow. So you have to speculate on those things continuing uh, to happen. So, you know, real estate 101, the safest place to play is in affordable markets, in affordable product niches that are positioned in such a way that they're going to be the winners uh, of an influx of people and businesses looking for a way to survive as they're clawing to a quality of life that's more affordable. Somebody might give up a beach in order to still be able to have a home and good shopping and transportation and health infrastructure. So you see, for example, a market like Phoenix that has been a winner versus uh, Southern California that's been a bit of a loser because of, you know, some things happening in the state of California that, that, that make Californians uh, willing to leave that California beach lifestyle that so many of them love and take on a desert lifestyle because a lot of the things they love are still available to them in Phoenix and they only have to give up a couple of things and it's a trade-off. So there's going to be some of that going on. I think, you know, an, another opportunity, I think, coming out of this COVID-19 crisis is that 
you know, well, Donald Trump and love him or hate him. Okay. But he was a champion of bringing manufacturing back to the United States. He was saying, this is a problem that true prosperity is actually making things. And those are good jobs. And we want those jobs here in the United States. You know, I had a chance to interview Donald Trump when he was candidate Donald Trump. And I asked him what a healthy housing market looked like in a Trump administration. He gave me a one word answer, jobs, jobs. And his answer for jobs weren't service sector jobs, weren't um, you know, the government jobs, it was manufacturing jobs. That's what he went to work on. Well, you know, there were people that said, hey, that's never going to happen. You know, that that ship has sailed. Uh, we're always going to export our cheap labor, um, you know, export our, our, our jobs to so we can import cheap labor and enjoy cheap costs of goods. And, you know, that may continue to be the case. But we just found out that if you don't make your own medicine and you don't make your own masks and you have a pandemic and those supplies are mission critical, now your society is in trouble. Maybe it's worth paying a premium to have those things manufactured in the U.S. I'm pretty sure those manufacturing plants aren't going to be located in Manhattan or San Francisco or Seattle. They're probably going to end up in places like Kentucky and Tennessee and Arkansas, you know, where there is affordable land, there's access to transportation infrastructure because that's important when you're manufacturing finished goods. Software, you can upload anywhere and code anywhere. But if I've got to roll autos off the assembly line and get them to distribution centers, I need to be near a river. I need to be near railways. I need to be near uh, big airports. You know, so transportation infrastructure. And obviously, you know, one of the other things we've seen is retail is been imploding and that was happening before COVID-19 is that as people have been stuck at home and aren't allowed to go to stores, the, the proliferation of online ordering and internet commerce has grown, which means distribution centers, places like Memphis, Atlanta, even Dallas, Texas, uh, who have great transportation infrastructure and are geographically strategically located, uh, could, could all be winners. So I think that, you know, investors going forward are going to have to realize there's some things that have changed. There's some things that remain the same. And that if you're at a price point in a market that is likely to attract uh, the expansion of industry and that there is the possibility of manufacturing, some manufacturing could probably come back to the United States quicker because there's a lot of political motivation to make that happen. Uh, and you realize that people who are living in expensive areas have just discovered and their employers have just discovered it is actually possible to work remotely. And I don't need to pay $6,000 a month to live in a 200 square foot, you know, place where I'm breathing everybody else's air 24 seven because we're on top of each other. Uh, I can move to the country. I can move to suburbia. I can move out of state. I can move out of the country. So, Who's going to be the winner there? Well, you know, if I could had a choice between living in, say, central Florida or Manhattan, and the only reason I was in Manhattan is so I can do my work as an, you know, credit analyst or whatever, and I can do the same job from central Florida and enjoy the sunshine and play, pay one-fifth and pay state, no state income tax, and my employer realizes they can pay me 20% less and I can have a better standard of living, I'm probably going to do that, and so are they. And so I think some of that's going to be happening. Obviously, these trends are going to take time to develop and we have to watch them. I would say these are more of investment hypotheses than they are strategies. But in terms of things I'm paying attention to, yeah. And marketplaces that have a limited supply of affordable housing, as people get crushed who are above you, they're going to be coming down. 
And that's going to put, you know, kind of a demand pillar underneath that middle market. And then, you know, I've been saying for a long time, I definitely would not want to be priced at top of market at the highest market in the highest product class. I want to be in the middle of everything so that there's always people above me who can come down in hard times. And in good times, there's always people below me who can come up. As everybody starts to get pushed down, the people at the very bottom are going to get pushed into the street. Now, you could see some gentrification, right? Because you're going to see people as they're moving from being in the middle to moving to the low, those C and D areas might start to come up a little bit uh, as, as the caliber of people who move in there that were used to living a certain way come. So I think there could be some, some opportunities there. But again, real estate is not macro. It is very local right down to the neighborhood. And so this is where you really have to depend upon your relationships with your team, your property manager, and, and, and people who really can see the trend. Because the macro, the stuff that you read on the news, the data, that's all looking in the rear view mirror. To see the future, you need to have your thumb on the pulse of what's happening right now. So you get data point in the past, data point in the now, based on anecdotal stuff from your boots on the ground and any stats you can get, how many applications came in, how much income do they make, you know, what's their credit scores, what's that profile trending like, and then that'll help you extrapolate it maybe into what the future looks like. So uh, it's an intellectual game to be a strategic real estate investor, but I think right now you do need to be strategic because you don't have the benefit of a lot of uh, uh, wind at your back right now. So, and and you want to be careful uh, you don't want to make sure that anything you have in your portfolio that is marginal, you're either cleaning up or getting out and just so that you can really uh, circle the wagons around the stuff that's quality, quality markets, quality teams, quality niches, quality tenants that you really want to make sure that you're in a position of strength to hold on to. Absolutely. And it really goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of that curiosity and downloading so much information and making decisions based on that information, perhaps to skate where the puck is going. And to understand perhaps, you know, yes, we may be looking in the rearview mirror when we're reading a news article or when we're absorbing information such as what's going on in the current environment, but how are you reading in between the lines? And one thing that I love about what you do is you always say, hey, here's the clues in the news that I'm observing. And it's about reading between the lines. One thing I'd love to know from you, just as a, uh, as a former mortgage professional, one thing that's so interesting about this environment is where rates are and obviously uh, what you know the the central banking system has done in terms of stimulus there from not only just continued quantitative easing but uh, just a historically low interest rate environment you know obviously we look internationally we also see negative interest rates so I'd be curious to know um, you know what's your opinion of where that's going over the next couple of years or and beyond uh, I know perhaps it may be a d- tough decision to say beyond that but just curious there so the model is broken. And it is absolutely unsustainable. But until it breaks, interest rates have to go lower in real terms. And here's the challenge. Once interest rates have gone down in, in real terms, meaning real is the difference between the cost of the money and the rate of inflation, right? If, it, if, if, if the interest rate is net negative after inflation, it's still negative, even though it may appear to be positive. So they have to go down. And the reason they have to go down is is when you understand uh, the inverse relationship between yields and, and bond values, which is like the inverse relationship between cap rates and apartment building values. If you bid more for the same income, 
your cap rate, your yield on the investment goes down. So when you are an owner of an apartment building, what you want to have happen is the cap rates to go down because that tells you the marketplace is bidding more for the same income. You don't have to raise your rents to get more equity. Okay. Bonds work exactly the same way. The difference is that the entire capitalization of the financial system is all based on the bond market. That's where all the value comes from. All the money that you have on your balance sheet, your asset values, your stock values, your real estate values, that all finds its genesis in how much credit is in the system. And the more asset value you have, the more equity you have in this system, the more debt exists in the system to create it. Okay. Once you understand that, then you realize all of that debt is on people, institutions, balance sheet as assets. So when you take out a mortgage, it's your liability. It shows up on the liability side of your balance sheet, but on the mortgage holders balance sheet, it shows up as an asset. You, your debt is their asset. And so the, the lender has what's called counterparty risk. And if you fail to perform, you fail to make your payments, their debt becomes worthless. Fortunately, they collateralize that debt. So either they're going to get the payments or they're going to get the property because it's secured debt. But a lot of bonds out there are unsecured, which means you either get the payments or you get nothing. And again, going back to where we're at with how much debt is going bad, right? But let's just say that wasn't the case. Let's just say that the, the payments continue to get made and we didn't have an economic crisis. So instead of this happening in a matter of weeks or months, it might drag out over the course of decades. But in either case, the problem is the same. And that is, is that when you have a, a, a balance sheet full of debt that you've hypothecated, meaning you've borrowed against it, then interest rates, when they go up, cause the collateral that you've pledged to go down. And when your collateral goes down against when you've pledged it as collateral, when, you're, when the collateral you've pledged goes down in value, in the paper asset world, you get what's called a margin call. We talked about that. And those margin calls set off a chain reaction of massive selling, which is price discovery headed down. That's what 2008 was. So that's been the big concern. Most of our policies in terms of banking policies revolve around trying to prop up the credit markets and make sure they don't implode. But the only way to do that is to continue to inflate them. And the only way to continue to debt service that inflated amount of debt is to keep lowering interest rates. So imagine if you had a uh, $200 a month that you could afford to pay on your credit card out of your income, right? You do whatever your job is. You have X amount of income. After all your living expenses, you have $200 a month available to service your credit card debt. And you have $10,000 at 24%. And you're, you're rocking along. But the, the, the lender says, hey, I need you to spend more. So I want to increase your, your, uh, your debt, your, your credit line from $10,000 to $20,000. But we realize you can still only afford to pay $200. So we're going to lower your interest rate from 24% to 12 and increase your credit line from 10 to 20. 
So now you have more purchasing power, but not more income. And so you go spend up to your 20,000 and the economy continues to grow based on your still $200 a month. Then you hit the limit. And the people come back and they're like, hey, you know what? We need the economy to grow. You know that $20,000 credit limit? We're going to double it to 40,000. But we know you can't afford to make the payment. So you know that 12% interest rate? We're going to drop it to six. Now you can afford to make the payment and you do what you're supposed to do. Spend, spend, spend. 70% of the economy is what? Consumer spending. Spend, mm -hmm. spend, spend. The economy's growing. You hit, now you're at $40,000. Like, oh, we can't grow the economy anymore. Hey, you know that 40,000? You see where I'm going, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right? 80,000. And then we lower the interest rate to three. Well, we flatlined the interest rate at zero for seven years. And then we had to go negative. So interest rates can't go up because if they go up, the system implodes. The only way to keep them from going down, from going up, is for, the, for there to be more people buying more debt. The problem is China has been divesting. Russia completely divested. People aren't buying U.S. debt. So who's buying it? The Fed. Well, how does the Fed buy it? They print money out of thin air and they buy the debt and they have to. So once again, as I said earlier, goes from, you forget the health crisis, which, which accelerated everything, but it goes from economic crisis, which means we don't have enough income to service the debt, to debt, financial system crisis, banking crisis, because the debt goes bad, to trying to prevent all that from happening by printing as many dollars as it takes to be able to paper over the financial system, which is in its death throes because it is an unsustainable model. You cannot have, it's been 40 some odd years. We set interest rates after the dollar collapsed in 1971. You know, we had stagflation and all that stuff going on into the late seventies. Reagan administration and, and Jimmy Carter actually is the one who nominated Paul Volcker to the Federal Reserve. He was the Federal Reserve chair. Today we have Jerome Powell before him. We had Ben Bernanke or Janet Yellen before her. We had Ben Bernanke before him. We had Alan Greenspan. But if you go all the way back, we had Paul Volcker and Paul Volcker to break the back of inflation, raised interest rates to over 21% prime rate. My first investment property, my interest rate was 13%. Okay. And so interest rates have been falling for 41 years. Most of us, and just looking at you, Tyler, I'm guessing most of your entire life, all the way back to toddling and before, you have only ever known a falling interest rate environment. That's true. And so that, that's because the, the financial system has been in this black hole. When we went off the gold standard in 1971, we went from being a system based on capital, based on money globally. The United States was already off it. But the globe went to a completely credit-based system in the 70s. And to reset, the reset was to jack up interest rates into the 20s and then lower them slowly to continue to expand the credit bubble. We hit the bottom line, we flatlined 2008 and had been at zero. We tried to pick ourselves back up off the mat. They tried to raise interest rates. They tried to shrink the balance sheet. They failed. They ended up having to raise interest rates and then, and then COVID-19 hit and accelerated the entire process. So everything is going to happen very fast, but the fundamentals of what's happening haven't changed. And interest rates are going to have to be suppressed until the Fed loses complete control. And then they, they're going to have to go up.
Now, what the monetary system will look like at that point in time or what even will be money, I don't know. But I think that's the way it's going to roll out. And obviously, through all these interviews we're doing with folks, um, you know, they're all weighing in. And I'm posing these questions to them to find out what they think. And we're kind of having those mastermind discussions. But those are the things I'm watching for. Right now, interest rates are in a black hole. They have to go down. Doesn't mean mortgage rates will go down, but just global interest rate bond rates will have to go down. Um, but I think at some point the system will break and interest rates are going to have to go up. And I think that, you know, we just are going to have to wait and see how that evolves and when it actually happens. Absolutely. And it almost seems to a certain degree that we've reached a point of no return and, you know, it will only continue until there's a tipping point, right? What's the next tipping point? So it goes back to just observing and following your own curiosity and reading in between the lines. How does this impact you? How does this impact your real estate investing? How does this impact your family, your business? And so just being aware, not having your head in the sand, I think is so important. And um, Russ, I mean, I could, I could continue this conversation for hours and hours and hours, but with respect to time, we'll transition into our rapid fire section, uh, which we call the rare air questionnaire. And obviously you're an uncommon individual and someone who is continuing to push the limits and raise the bar in your own life and your own business and, and the information that you're sharing. And so I'd love to ask you just a few questions here specifically uh, as such a curious individual, as someone who's so engaged intellectually, this one, I'm really excited to ask you, what are, you know, a few of the most impactful books that you've read uh, along your journey? Wow. I mean, I have a giant library. I, I mentioned the creature from Jekyll Island. Uh, and so I think that that's a must read for anybody, especially right now. In fact, for me, it's a must reread. Um, I think Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand was a really important book. Uh, you know, you may not agree with the politics, but it helps you understand the mindset of people who are producers and how they behave when they're put upon to a certain point. I mean, you see that happening in California. You saw that happen in Detroit. Detroit was at one time the richest city in the world and it became the poster child for the largest municipal bankruptcy. Uh, and how did that happen? It happened because the producers left and the only people that left are Atlas shrugged in Detroit. And so we have to be aware of that. So I think that was a very impactful book. I could go on and on, but just off the top of my head, those are a couple. Yeah, no, I, I see the beautiful bookshelf there. So I knew it was going to be a tough question for you. And so this is my so, studio bookshelf. You should see my real bookshelf. <laughs> I think I've seen your real bookshelf and it's, it's beautiful. Um, so thank you for, for stretching there and answering that question for me. If you had to say um, outside of what we've talked about today and really what we talked about earlier in terms of, you know, building your tribe and sharing information and learning and growing masterminding with others, surrounding yourself with great people, great advisors. What would you say are some of the other, maybe perhaps maybe another big way that you elevate your life on a daily basis would be? Teach. Yeah, teach. You know, you should be, you should, you should be studying diligently to earn your right to be in a conversation with people that are much, much, much smarter than you. And then you have to realize that, you know, those are the rooms you want to spend the most time in. But then you take what you learn in those rooms and you turn right around and you process it by talking to other people that aren't quite as far along in your, in your area of study. And you will actually become smarter. But more than that, you, you will also um, make an impact on the world because, you know, you can't be like the Dead Sea of knowledge. You can't just be an inlet where all you do is absorb 
and use things for your own benefit. We are in a ecosystem and we have a role to play, you know, intake and outlet. I breathe in uh, oxygen and I exhale carbon uh, dioxide and plants do the opposite. Uh, you know, the, I mean, we could use other analogies in nature, but you get the idea. And the same thing I think is, is, is largely true in, in tribal knowledge. You know, you have uh, in tribal economy, right? Right now, we're trying to flatten the economic curve by putting a lot of financial education out there as fast as we can, as free as for free, because every single person who is insulated from the negative impacts of what may be coming who doesn't end up becoming a burden on the financial system, but become, can become a source of strength, becomes a source of strength for society. I mean, ultimately a society is a collection of healthy individuals. And so I think it starts at the individual level, just like in your health, in your physical body, it starts at the cellular level. Big muscles are nice, nice toned skin is nice, but those are reflections of healthy cells, healthy body chemistry. So don't just look on the external, but look on the internal as an individual and as a society and, and teach, give back. That's I a think way it's to so, share. I think it's so profound that um, the biggest way or one of the biggest ways that you elevate your life on a daily basis is through teaching. And ironically, mo many would think that that's a way that you would elevate others. So I'll transition into my next question there to say, hey, what's the biggest way that you elevate others around you? I know that you mentioned teaching really serves you and obviously it serves others, but I'd be curious to know if you'd take that a step further. Yeah, I mean, we create environments, you've been in them. And, and we, we have an abundance attitude. And I don't try to say that boastfully. I just think that a lot of people approach the world as a win-lose, uh, as a give-take. And we don't, we don't see it that way. We believe in synergy. We think that if we can collaborate with other people, uh, and put people in an environment where they meet other people and we can set off a chain reaction of relationships and friendships. You know, we introduced Robert Kiyosaki to G. Edward Griffin. We introduced Peter Schiff to, to, to both of them. Um, we've introduced a lot of people. And you say, well, th those people all could have picked up the phone and talked to each other and they all would have taken each other's ca calls in a heartbeat. Yeah, but for whatever reason, they didn't. And we were the catalyst. We made it happen. Well, the same thing is true. You know, when we create an env environment, whether it's our Investor Summit at Sea or our Secrets of Successful Syndication or any of the other events that we do like, or promote, you know, we promote third-party events like the New Orleans Investment Conference. The reason we do that is because we're, we're, we're working hard to get other people together with other people and sew the tribe together to create bonds, to strengthen uh, just to strengthen the relationships of the community of people that care about what's going on in the economy, that care about what's going on in the world, and are trying to find a way to strengthen themselves individually, but are doing it from the attitude of, hey, I want to help others be strong too. So maybe every answer is longer than you anticipated, but, uh, but that's the answer. <laughs> no, that's amazing. And the great thing is, is that every single listener, every single viewer has the opportunity to create an environment as well. You know, we don't have to just sit back and be consumers. As you mentioned a little bit earlier, 70% of, you know, Americans or the 70% of the economy is really through consumption. So how can we move from being a consumer to a producer? And how can we create an environment to where we can teach others and lift others up and elevate others because ultimately as you just you know illustrated for us when we elevate someone else it really elevates ourselves as well and 
and what a great way to live our life and run our business and uh, leave a legacy. So with that said, Russ, any, any final thoughts or parting words of wisdom that you'd share with Elevate Nation today? Well, our motto, the Real Estate Guys radio show is education for effective action. So take the things that you've learned. And I, I think the, 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 my, my focal point right now and has always been work diligently to control the things that you can control, which are few, so that you can be in better position to respond with resilience to the many things you cannot control. And so think about the things in your life that you have control over and don't waste another minute of your life complaining or worrying about things you can't control. Put all of your energy into focusing on the things you can control, your health, how you use your time, your relationships, what you put into your mind, and then take the education you get when you get a good idea and go experiment with it. Put it into practice, you know, with a limited amount of risk that you can accept and learn by doing. Don't just learn by listening. Don't learn by studying. I mean, start there but learn by doing because that's where the best lessons are out in the real world. Absolutely. Take action, take effective action, you know, on what you learn, because that's really how you're going to get the appropriate feedback through trying and through doing and, and, you know, getting, you know, getting your feet muddy, you know, getting your hands dirty, uh, rolling up those sleeves. So I really, really appreciate that. Russ, this has been an absolute blast. I really appreciate you taking time. I know the listeners can find you through the real estate guys radio, uh, and, everywhere that podcasts are found, but how else can the listeners stay engaged and, and uh, follow you along your journey? Well, I think maybe the easiest way is just to read the newsletter every week. Um, you know, it's a newsletter at realestateguysradio.com. And if you like it, uh, of course, you can listen to the podcast, realestateguysradio.com and uh, share it. Get together with people, talk about what you've heard, what you've learned. Uh, you may not always agree. That's okay. Uh, just Just think about it. And, um, and then, and then, you know, become part of the process, become part of the cure, become part of flattening the curve, get out there and, and educate other people. So, uh, and maybe we'll see each other come to a live event. That's the best way to actually interact with me as Tyler knows, you know, once you have me, you have me, otherwise I'm pretty hard to reach. Uh, but once you got me, you got me. So I'd love to see, love to see some folks once we come out of our hunkering down and get out in the real world and start mingling again. Uh, but come out to one of our live events. You can find out when those are by being on the list or visiting realestateguysradio.com and just clicking on the tab that says events. Yeah. And you absolutely want to go there because um, not only, you know, is Russ and, and his team putting out great content, but it's actionable content. And I mean, he's talking about the uh, the newsletter. I mean, I just read your newsletter this morning and it's amazing. I mean, it's so well thought out and it's distilling the clues in the news or what's going on. We're where do we need to skate? You know, where's the puck going? I mean, there's so much information that is, you know, that you can act on, you know, it's not about just consuming, it's about action. And so I just really appreciate that. And I highly encourage Elevate Nation to not only re-listen to the show, but re-listen re to the show and take notes. You know, what are your top three distinctions? What are your takeaways? What are your action items? And how can you teach this to someone else? Because as Russ just mentioned, you know, one of the biggest ways that he elevates his own life is by teaching. And we both know that the teacher is really who learns the most. Not only can you share and maybe enlighten someone else, but you know what, you can actually elevate your own results just through sharing that information and anchoring in your own understanding. I know, you know, whenever I have a conversation like this with you, Russ, I learn more because I'm able to, you know, straighten out my thinking. And I know I would imagine that you probably learned something yourself today just through talking, just through sharing, 
just through sharing your wisdom. So I just encourage Elevate Nation to share this with a friend. And, you know, you can send it in a text message. You know, hey, I'd love to talk to you about this. I'd love to talk to you about my top three distinctions. And beyond that, you've got to take massive action and pick yourself up when you fail because, look, it's going to happen. Failure is inevitable. But guess what? Uh, you know what? If it was easy, everyone would do it. And so it's not only inevitable, it's necessary. Absolutely. I love that. I love that. Thank you for adding that. I, I really appreciate that. It is absolutely necessary. And it's a clue that you're on the right path, right? Because when you fail, you know, you're getting closer to, to your end goal. So with that said, Russ, I want to thank you again so much for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me, Tyler. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. And Elevate Nation, we will see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. This episode of Elevate is brought to you by CF Capital, a real estate investment firm formed by myself and my partner, Brian Flaherty, where we invest in multifamily real estate communities across the Southeast United States. If you'd like to learn more about our approach, our mission, our acquisition criteria, and how you can learn more about future opportunities, visit cfcapllc.com. Again, that's cfcapllc.com. Thank you for listening to Elevate. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. Most importantly, take this opportunity to elevate your results by taking immediate action on what you learned. For more, visit elevatepod.com.